Hello and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Yoshida. I am the entertainment editor at The Verge. I'm Liz Lopato. I'm the science editor at The Verge. And thank you very much for bearing with us. We had a week off. I was on the other side of the country, missing out on most current events, um, except uh, a few very large ones, which we will probably not discuss on today's podcast, uh, at risk of both of us, I think, probably going into apoplectic rants. Can we agree on that? Um, <laughs> yeah, apt, apt, public, uh, ranting is, is one risk for sure. I think possibly also just crying. Yeah. 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 It's it, It's been a tough week. It's been a tough week. It's really hard to chat about other stuff that's going on because it does seem a little small by comparison, which means it's a great know. time for there to be leaked pics of Taylor Swift and her new boyfriend, I guess. I, I mean, know. all I saw was some hot people on rocks. I don't know that that's yeah. enough to confirm a relationship. I like I like hot people on rocks as a, as a meme, as a as a as a vertical, maybe. Yeah, this is basic. I've been so I was away. I got back at like six or so yesterday in the evening eastern time and this was like literally the first news item that i saw upon returning to earth and 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 american time so i was like great it's great to be back great to be back in the thick of it yeah i i would like to say though that i feel like we somehow like uh, what's uh, we manifested this that's that's the secret word right um i, I think that's the secret word yeah, yeah because uh, i was talking about like rambling a little bit incoherently about tom hiddleston a couple weeks ago because I had been watching The Night Manager. And I think my the conflict in my mind was kind of about whether or not Tom Hiddleston was actually talented as an actor or like a good actor, which is a different question, I think, from being a good presence. And then right. if he was also kind of boring or just like, like if he like knocked on his head, would there be anything in there? I feel like that's the Taylor Swift thing, though, really kind of brings that. I feel like I have a little bit of confirmation I mean, there's a part of me that's like, well, she's hot and she's loaded. So, you know, there's like there's some savvy there. Right. But like, OK, so I feel like I, I saw this on Twitter because it was like consuming Twitter right. yesterday afternoon. And first of all, I think people were hungry to discuss something that was light and silly after all of the events this week. So yes. that was like feeding into it. But also that looked so staged. Oh my me. god, but she's a master of that. Did you see the paparazzi pictures while she was dating Harry Styles? They're <laughs> so, like, she does, I would like to know her methods. I feel like a hundred years from now, when she's dead, people will be allowed to do the tell-all of her secrets, her media secrets, because she does do, like, she's the master. She would tell people when she was leaving her apartment in Tribeca and, like, have these just incredible like 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 vogue worthy shots of her like leaving her beautiful you know multi-million dollar apartment in Tribeca with like this perfect outfit head to toe like this whole look but where does she take the cat like do you remember those photos (laughs) where she's just like holding the cat the cat's not even a carrier she's just like got it on her arm yeah like carrying it out for the paparazzi it's like her her handbag I don't know I mean she's still got that whatever that is I, I it's interesting to to see how the more things change, the more things stay the same with certain celebrities. Uh, Kanye well, West mean, as well this week. But. Yeah. Uh, to me, like, this seems like a very almost classic Hollywood kind of thing where, like, 
you know she wishes uh, she wishes <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> like really literally like she's like oh we'll be just like Catherine and spencer what you know i i can totally see her having that kind of Right. But I mean, it's like one of those things, right, where like, you know, they're on a rock and they're unaware they're being observed. And yet somehow there are like several like pictures of their actual faces. Yeah. Yeah. So um, and also, how did the paparazzi know they were on those rocks? And I, I, I mean, I, I also just want to take a hot minute to talk about the headline that came with it because it's so, so good. Which is Tinker Taylor Snog a Spy. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes people, you know, get really into New York Post headlines, but never underestimate a British tabloid. Just being able to knock it out of the park. Yeah. True. I mean, like, true. (laughs) That's just true and real. That was just like one of those moments where I was like, I hope that headline writer just like got a bonus. I hope that like (laughs) they were were, like, good job. Here's an extra bottle of whiskey. (laughs) Well, other news happened this week other than Taylor Swift, but you know. Thank God for the distractions. Yeah, for real. So um, SpaceX launched and tried to land a rocket. Uh, It did not land. And the only reason I bring this up is because SpaceX has so routinely landed rockets now that it's a little bit of a surprise when they don't manage to do it, which is a a huge change of pace from this time last year when nobody had landed a rocket that had gone that high before. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. That used to be like the thing is that, wait, when was the first one that got landed successfully? Because I remember about a year ago that it was still... Well, so um, Orbital, um, or sorry, Blue Orbit had done it, uh, but not with a rocket that had gone nearly as high. And they, right. the, the, when that news came out, it prompted Elon Musk to be like, all right, we're landing on solid ground to show you we can do that. And I think that was December. And then okay. the, first, the first successful barge landing... God, when was the first successful barge landing? There was at least one right after I got back from Mexico in April, and I'm not remembering when the other one was. But there had been enough landings that were like, well, I'm probably going to land it again. Is it it something that weak weather could be a factor, or is it just human error? What's the... Who knows? Could be anything. but nope. I mean, like, you know, if there wasn't enough fuel coming back to allow it to slow down properly, if the angle of the barge was wrong because of a choppy sea, um, you know, like if one of like because previously when they've they've landed, sometimes like one of the, the things that comes out to brace the rocket upright fails. And there was like that slow motion video of the rocket tilting over. Oh, man. Um, there, are, there are so many things that could have gone wrong. But what was sort of dramatic about it was <laughs> there was like this period where nobody was sure what had happened to the rocket because um, it looked like it could have landed on the video initially before the feed cut out. Uh huh. And then it was just quiet for a while. And the first time, you know, I don't know. It, it was just one of those moments where it was like, well, where did the rocket go? How do you how do you lose a rocket? But yeah, it was like a it was uh, what what Elon Musk likes to call a rapid unscheduled disassembly, which is to say it blew up. Man, rapid disassembly is that what? Wait, it was ra- rapid rapid unscheduled disassembly? disassembly. Okay, R U D. I like that. <laughs> I like that that phrasing a lot. So uh, and, and then what what was the gra- what happened with gravitational waves this week? Well, so this is cool. Um, We've talked about gravitational waves before. And, you know, just as a reminder, they were postulated by Einstein, but hadn't been found until pretty recently. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a second signature of two black holes merging. Because the two were not as big as the first ones, the waves were a little fainter, but they also went on longer because it took longer for the two black holes to collapse Uh into each other. And 
So the second observation makes the first observation look more trustworthy, and it also suggests we're going to be seeing a lot of gravitational waves coming in the near future now that we've sort of figured out how to do it. And what's interesting about that to me is the potential for doing astronomy via gravitational wave. Right. Because there are lots of ways that we observe the universe now. Some of them are just, you know, like visible light. Uh, Some of it is x-ray. Some of it is infrared. There are lots and lots of ways to observe what's out there. And this seems to be something else that we can add to our repertoire for very massive objects. I know that there are scientists who are talking about uh, moving on from black holes to see what happens if like, you know, a bla- two black holes to see what happens if it's like a black hole and a quasar, right. you know. But this would not be, I, I can't imagine, I mean, a black hole is one thing, but it probably wouldn't be the kind of thing we would use to observe, like, say, habitable planets or something. That would be on a, a much smaller order no. of object that you would not be able to detect, detect the waves of, right? Right. It would have to be something relatively massive. Although, you know, there are plans to do um, one of these detectors in space. And there last week was the news that it looks like it's it's theoretically feasible that you can keep an object indefinitely in free fall. So that would be important for this wave detector because you would want to have basically the sensors in space moved moved by nothing, not touching anything. And then if they were to move, you would know that you're dealing with a gravitational wave. Got it. So there's been some exciting stuff happening for gravitational waves. Uh, we have, if, if this feels dense or difficult to understand, we do have explainer text and video on the site that will help you understand better. But I think this is really, really cool and possibly the beginning of a new kind of astronomy. So I'm excited about it. So speaking of space... Yesterday, there was a big meeting from the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology, and they were discussing the health of astronauts. It was the first time that that had been really discussed in this way. Because as you may or may not know, NASA does not currently provide health care to astronauts after they retire, but Congress is considering passing legislation that would authorize NASA to do so. Well, see, this was a surprise to me when you, you told me about this story, because I don't know. I just thought like an astronaut is like a veteran. They're like, a, they're, they've been to war, except space, like a much more peaceful war, but still like a very, they've provided a very visible service, I guess, to our country in a way. I don't yeah. know. It was very surprising I mean, to me that, that we didn't we didn't have like I guess there's not enough astronauts to have like the same like the equivalent of, of veterans hospitals or something. But right. I mean, there are just there aren't a lot of astronauts. <laughs> How many astronauts are there? Um, that's a good question. And I don't I, really I could guess it. like 50 living, but I would I could also guess like in the hundreds. I have no idea. Oh, I I. Th- Oh, you know what? I I do I do know how many. <laughs> it's 280. Wow. Okay. 280 right. NASA astronauts. So so basically they have a they have a basic voluntary health program for former astronauts, but only about 60 percent of these astronauts use it. So they're hoping to expand that in order to both like treat them for for illnesses, but also to to, to monitor their health and see what the long term is effects of space are on the human body because we do know that there are some short-term effects right right? like for instance you know uh, microgravity can cause bone loss Mm -hmm. so that that puts you at risk for kidney stones and breaking your bones when you're back at earth and time spent without gravity can alter your back's alignment um, so putting you at risk for back injuries 
when you're in space, you tend to endure muscle loss, uh, including muscle from the heart. Mm. Uh, so that can cause heart problems for astronauts when they, they return to Earth. It also stiffens arteries, which is not great for your blood pressure. Right. And so, you know, there's a whole list of problems, right? Like a lot of astronauts experience swelling in the back of their eyes when they return to Earth, and that can really mess up their eyesight. Whoa, why is that? How does that happen? I haven't heard that before. I think, well, space blindness is a thing, um, and no one's totally sure what causes it. But it might be like, part of what's going on is um, when you and I are sitting here on Earth talking, gravity is pulling blood down to our legs. Mm -hmm. Without gravity, um, a lot of that fluid tends to stay in the upper body and swell tissues. Right, right. And so... All this is making me not want to go to space anymore. (laughs) Sounds so nasty. But I mean, if you keep... If you stay in space, will you ever see the effects of it? Or is it from having gone into space and then being back on Earth? Or does it depend on the condition? I think it depends on the condition. I think we're going to know a lot more when we start to get results from Scott Kelly. Uh, yeah, because he yeah. was there for so long. But I mean, he he's talked about the, the the problems that he's experienced. You know, he had skin rashes, his legs were swollen, he had flu-like symptoms, he had a hard time walking. This is all after returning. Yeah, yeah. So Oof. you know, there there are some of these things. But like you know, when you're in space, you're exposed to a lot more radiation. Radiation can cause cancer. It may also explain. It, it may not, but it might explain why people who spent more time in space are more likely to get cataracts. Wow, man, what? Okay, I, I do want them to study this because I want space to be something we can go to in a fun and fancy free way and not have to worry about like our entire bodies breaking down after we come back. Like, right? I need we, casual space. I would like <laughs> casual space. So like one of the cool things that we ran, um, God, when did we run it? I think we ran it last week. It might have been Monday. I, my, everything's blurring together for me. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, Luxembourg is trying to compete with U.S. in space mining, right? Um, which is an actual sentence I just said out loud that is not a joke. <laughs> living um, in the future, living in the future, and uh, some of the people who want to do the space mining stuff also are very ambitious to have space cities set up. Mm-hmm. And so, if 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 you have, if you know that like living in space causes these effects, and and potentially can can make it very difficult to return to Earth. I think that would be a serious deterrent for this this vision of space cities where you have like something in low Earth orbit that's just an ecosystem. Yeah. But it's a place that people live not for their whole lives. Like they would go there for a season or something and do work there and then come back. So you would have to be able to adapt to both environments, I would imagine. Also, space mining town, it's like... And then I just can think of like the space... Like the the dead space mining town after it yeah, goes after it goes right. bust. And then, I mean, like, like there's all kinds of sci-fi potential here for anybody who's interested in writing about space, space mining. ghost town is right. the end game. <laughs> space ghost town, not to be confused with uh, a town devoted to space ghosts. <laughs> Just all space ghost town. <laughs> but so one of the arguments that was made yesterday was that NASA has the moral obligation to provide for lifetime care for all illnesses in the same way that you know. Uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs does for veterans. I would agree with that. It's a huge, I mean, even without knowing all these gnarly things that, ha- that happen, it's it's still a largely unknown proposition to send a human into space. Like, that's why we keep doing it, because we're trying to figure it out. Like, I think if you put yourself, A, through all the training that's necessary to to do that, and then do it, you've, like, really, really helped our understanding of space, whether or not we decide that we want to 
you know, colonize Mars or not. Just yeah. the, the fact that we know more about any aspect of it, even the most mundane thing about like how gravity works or whatever. Uh, I think I think it makes sense. It seems like like I said, I was surprised it didn't happen already. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, it seems like a, a very important thing, not only for future space flight, like NASA is thinking people on Mars in the 2030s. Elon Musk is thinking people on Mars earlier than that. Yeah. You know, n- knowing what these effects might be, knowing what this is like, is seems pretty crucial. But in particular, you know, <laughs> there was this nice thing that, that Michael uh, Lopez Allegra, Allegria? Sorry, mm. Michael. A, a former NASA astronaut said at the hearing, which is, you know, our flights and careers have been paid, by, paid for by taxpayers' dollars. We owe those taxpayers those data to help them make informed decisions about space flight. Yeah. And I mean, now that you're going to have a volume of people that are coming back, like enough to actually study, it just seems like it's just a good, healthy cycle to have people that you can make your future decisions about how you treat or prepare people in the future to go up into space. It just seems like good business practices. Yeah. Well. So anyway, that's that's something that's moving forward, and I I hope to see I hope to see it get funded. So just FYI, that's what's happening in space. So just you know, if we haven't completely freaked you out on like if you want to be an astronaut and we just completely scared you off of it, good news, you're going to be taken care of when even when your bones all start breaking and your eyes flooding with fluid. So great, cool. Hey everybody, do you love books but find that you never have time to read them? Well, Audible.com has the perfect solution. Get audiobooks and listen to those books you've been meaning to read while on the go. At the gym, during your commute, Audible.com provides over 250,000 titles from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. Their app is free and it works on iPhones, iPad, Android, and Windows Phone. You can also download and listen on your Kindle Fire and over 500 MP3 players. And unlike a streaming or rental service, with Audible, you own your books, so you can access your books anytime and anywhere right from your smartphone. Audible.com also has a great listen guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title anytime, no questions asked. Um, We were just browsing through trying to figure out uh, what we were going to download on audible.com. And I mean, I don't know. I feel like there's always a thing where you don't want to have certain books physically because they're embarrassing or you don't want people to judge you. And are we talking about George R.R. Martin here? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we do talk about Game of Thrones, the television show now and then. Um, I've read the first book of the Game of Thrones series or the Song of Ice and Fire series, but you could, I could catch up and listen to all of them in between the season and the next and be perfectly ready for when the winds of winter come with never having to have have either a Kindle that somebody could read over my shoulder while I'm reading a particularly grisly um, and or offensive scene and uh, and not a, and a not a physical book cover either so so I might do that on audible maybe <laughs> sounds like the perfect way to cover your tracks <laughs> Um, and just for listeners, Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com slash ESP today to start your free trial today. That is audible.com slash ESP. 
in a in a week that has been a downer in general, out of the entertainment world, out of one of the what tends to be, I think, reliably one of the most life affirming and sweet and dependable corners of entertainment, of global entertainment. We had another downer story this week. We cannot win. Um, We probably would have discussed this last week if we would have been on, but I'm actually kind of glad we waited till now because it's resolved itself in a way. I'm talking about Studio Ghibli. Ghibli, Ghibli, you can... (laughs) We just were trying to discuss how to pronounce it, and I just pronounced it in the way that I said I wasn't going to pronounce it. Um, But uh, Yoshiaki Nishimura, who was the director of When Marnie Was There, which was one of the last... If not, was that the last Ghibli film, a feature animated film, to come out after Hayao Miyazaki retired and and shuttered the studio? He made some controversial statements about women and directing. It should be noted, of course, that Ghibli films and Miyazaki films especially tend to famously, I think, feature female protagonists and in a very positive, I think, good way. But there, it's been all of the films have been directed by men, like without fail. So. I'm going to find the quote here. So he was asked about whether a stu- the studio would ever hire a female director. Now, it turns out, I guess, he was not talking about Studio Ghibli, but he was t- talking about a studio that he had started. So he said, it depends on what kind of film it would be. Unlike live action with animation, we have to simplify the real world. Women tend to be more realistic and manage day-to-day lives very well. Men, on the other hand, tend to be more idealistic. And fantasy films need that idealistic approach. I don't think it's a coincidence men are picked. Huh. So. Well, that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, and he, he went on to say some kind of questionable things, too. Particularly about the fact that so many of these films have had these um, girl protagonists like I, I think like, it goes beyond the idea of like a in finger quotes like a strong female protagonist I think that like they are fully fleshed like very very I think important characters especially for young women and girls who are watching these films at an early age I mean I know for me they were very when I was very impressionable these characters made a big impression on me but he kind of talked about how he was able to work on a film that had a female protagonist because he was able to he was able to be a little more rational in dealing with the character um, or writing the character um, oh really because he would be more emotionally attached or involved with a boy character or a male character so you know i mean <laughs> it I seems mean, like like a little contradictory no <laughs> it's just a little there's something here that that is i mean we hear about this all the time right like uh well women are are, are better at doing the day-to-day work and that's why we have them all as secretaries and won't promote them yeah you know, like there's, it's like it's just disappointing. Like it's the same shit over and over. Like women are better at realistic things, and that's why I let them run my life while I direct movies. Right. I mean, women are our caretakers, and and uh, they are just naturally more inclined to take care of things and clean up other people's messes. I mean, we talked about this a little bit. I mean, the thing that this immediately puts me in mind of uh, is Project Greenlight, the of course. Um, the fantastic slash horrible reality show on HBO that caused kind of a stir earlier this year. I don't know. Time is melting for me. I think it was earlier this year. And, you know, the the F.E. Brown, who was the producer for this film by this kind of um, obnoxious, if you ask me, male director, young male director, was really in that position of, I mean, her career is, is cleaning up after people, is like arranging things so that directors, and I mean, she's, she's worked with, you know, 
male and female directors, but in this case, for a male director to make sure that his his playtime, his his artistic exploration is as uh, trouble free as possible. That's basically the, the, the job description of a producer, just to get all the ducks in a row so that the creative force in the forefront of the film can make the magic happen. And that's a very traditional lineup, too. I mean, like, if you look at the lives of writers like Tolstoy mm-hmm. and others, but particularly with Tolstoy, like, he was just, like, locked away writing all day while his wife raised their children by herself yeah. and, like, took care of their house by herself. And I bring this up because she was uh, pretty brilliant in her own right, and he, mm-hmm. like, stole some of her writing Yeah, for female characters. Which made her very angry. Oh God, yeah, yeah, and it's also like you are you are in that case when you are actually like providing for somebody in their home, not just in the work sphere, like making sure they eat or bathe. Then you're you you're actually like preventing them from dying in some ways, <laughs> which right. is really really clearing a path for. Uh, for not for being able to make the magic happen, but right, like you see it over and over, like Raymond Carver, who was supported by his first wife, mm-hmm. and then like dumped her as soon as he got famous, and like mm. married somebody else, and like it's just it's this repeated thing where it's like, oh yes, well women are better at realistic things, and so I just let them do that while I dream my dreams, right. and it's like, well. You know, you might be a little bit better at dreaming some dreams if we didn't have to clean up after your ass all the time. It's just the thought. Yeah. I mean, and and this is just sort of comes out of, I think, even talking about it in a very specific framework, he's talking about animated films that are like genre films or like highly imaginative feature films. There's like not enough data, even if it were true. There's not enough female, like female directors that have been able to work on that scale and in that genre and with those parameters. Uh, Brian Brian Bishop wrote a kind of great response to this whole thing when it first came out last week. Yeah, I think this was on June 8th that Brian wrote this piece. But just, you know, that there are actually like lots of, I mean, he brought up a lot of great examples of, of, of female directors and you know, auteur directors, like writer directors, who've made amazing work that have clearly demonstrated that they can get the job done and get it done well and imaginatively and like not in this sort of rational stereotypical way that 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 uh, this director imagines that women would approach a film but still there aren't that many instances of women being like helming something on the level of Game of Thrones or The Hunger Games or something like that. You just don't see that. You ha- you see you see women oftentimes writing the source material for these things, but then when it comes time to realizing it on film or making an adaption, you don't see that. Yeah, it's just disappointing, you know, and I think I think again it's one of these things that a lot of it can be chalked up to cultural differences between Japan and the United States, but I would add also that we're not that much better. So as soon as you start saying like, oh, the Japanese are so backwards or misogynistic or like behind the times when it comes to attitudes about women, we might be a little bit ahead, but like it's a skosh. It's not that much better. (laughs) I mean, like just listen to like the way that people have been talking about Hollywood, the way we've been talking about Hollywood for the last year. And, like, uh, look at the Oscar nominations and how rarely women get to win Best Director because they are so rarely directors at all. I mean, it's just... Yeah. It's frustrating. It's frustrating to hear... I mean, like, it's, it's frustrating to hear, but, like, in a way, and maybe this is just me, it's relieving 
to hear <laughs> someone state it that directly. Yeah. Because then you can interact with it. You know what I mean? You can totally. Like, well, that's wrong. It's not couched in all this sort of past, like people knowing that on some level politically they need to say the right thing to the press. Well, really, it's a meritocracy. And right. if more women rose to the top, there'd be more female directors. Yeah. Like that just like, sir, no. Or like, it's cute that you believe that. I'm, sh- I'm glad that lets you sleep at night, yeah. but it's definitely not a meritocracy. Or like in the words of of Matt Damon, you know, you don't do diversity behind the scenes. You do diversity on screen. It's so that the the men can keep directing the films and staying in power. Um, So I I assume this pissed everybody off. Yeah, it did. It was uh, it was original. This interview was originally published in The Guardian last Monday. So um, and he was talking about he was talking. So he's since started a new studio. So he wasn't even talking about Ghibli necessarily. And there are, uh, you know, there are a lot of female animators and stuff that have worked for Ghibli. And, you know, that's that's well documented. But at the same time, you know, you're not seeing women writing or in those kind of chief top of the line uh, creative roles on on their films. So he could he he is you know, he has since apologized. I think he apologized yesterday. He's sort of um, it seems mostly like one of those apologies. It's like it's not a am sorry you were offended. Like, I think it's a little bit better than that. But um it's still obviously spurred by the public reaction. Right, um, it's damage control. Yeah, yeah. You know, he said, The article was based on an interview conducted in Britain in, on September 28th, 2015. I actually made those statements at that time. First, I left Ghibli at the end of 2014. I'm no longer a Ghibli employee. I deeply apologize for causing the, the mistaken impression that my opinions represent Ghibli's and displeasing all who love Ghibli. Next, I definitely had the sexist belief that men had a strong tendency to be idealistic and that women were better at living, living reality. Not me. Uh, I, am, <laughs> I am reflecting and learning. Gender has nothing to do with making movies. My deepest apologies. So... I'm reflecting and learning is like as good as you can ask for, I think. In a, yeah. But we've, we've definitely seen apologies for this kind of thing that are worse. I, hopefully he just, you know, takes a lot of time to reflect and learn. But it's, it's, it's true. I mean, I can't I, I have a tough time thinking of a female Japanese filmmaker. I can think of a film that was um, directed like recent film that was um, directed, I know, by a Japanese woman. But I cannot tell you her name because I don't remember it. So, you know, it's it's tough. It's as tough there as it is anywhere else, anywhere else. Um, well, it would be it would be nice to see him make a move towards mentoring more women or doing something to demonstrate that he understands the level of harm he caused and is attempting to man- ameliorate it. Like, yeah. not that I have any control over what anybody does, but like that's one of the things that to me. Because I hear that reflecting and learning shit a lot. Like, well, this has been a learning experience and I'm glad I sparked a dialogue. Yeah. And it's like, why don't you do more than just spark a dialogue? Like, why don't you actually like create a mentor program? Yeah. Like, if your problem is that the talent pool isn't deep enough, then create room to build the talent pool. Like, yeah. do something. You, you're in a position of power. Do something. And I think, you know, in, in the U.S., at least at this point, you can, like, I think, is it the second highest grossing film of all time, Frozen? It must be. Um, I think so. I think it's the second. You know, Jennifer Lee is uh, is the second highest grossing <laughs> filmmaker in the country off of an animated film that say what you want about Frozen. Maybe you don't. It's not your cup of tea, but it is 
very informed by a female point of view in an important way, I think. And that's why it resonated. And, you know, I think I, I know she's been very involved in initiatives like women in film here in this country. It would be nice to see more of that in Japan because they have such a rich history and tradition of animation, obviously. But, you know. Well, it might, it might, it might take a while. But maybe this is, maybe this. I have also no idea how much this has been responded to negatively in Japan. I know how much it's been responded to here, but um, so who knows if this has sparked a, a similar conversation or incited a need for some kind of mentoring or more fostering of a like young female animators. Who knows? Yeah. So I, um, after the catastrophic events this weekend, needed a little break from the media, which is difficult because part of my job is literally reading the news. Right. So I took a break and watched the Lemmy documentary. Um, mm -hmm. For those of you uh, who may not know him, Lemmy is the lead singer, was the lead singer of Motorhead and was um, a fairly legendary force. Like, I think he's basically responsible for the entire genre of thrash metal. Yeah. So, you know, if you're if you're a rock chick, as it turns out, I happen to be. <laughs> <laughs> you're a resident someone... rock chick, not only on this <laughs> podcast, but on The Virgin General, which is something to be yeah. proud of. The correspondent of very loud music. <laughs> you know, he, he's he's got this incredible legacy. Uh, he's really responsible. Like, there's no Pantera. There's no Metallica. Like, all of these bands that I love, there's they don't exist without without Motorhead. And it was it was neat. Basically, the filmmakers spent three years with him, and they got interviews with with musicians who had worked with him too. So there's like Dave Grohl, who's just like in love with him, basically, like just like oh man, there's no replacing Lemmy, mm -hmm. you know. And you've got like Jarvis Cocker and a number of other folks who you don't necessarily totally expect to be big stands. Uh -huh. um, you're just like yeah, he's the nicest guy, and it, it does it does deal with of course his his lifestyle, which he like it was funny because he was asked about all of his drug use and and the fact that he drinks and was still drinking when the the documentary was going on, and, and as far as I know, was drinking up to the time of his death, as much as a fifth of Jack a day, which eventually like did lead to his diabetes, which is depicted in the the documentary. Yeah, but you know, I mean, it was one of those things where he was like, "Well, I I can't recommend this." And there's 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 one of the there were some of the funniest and strangest parts of the documentary was where he was interviewed with his son. Because mm -hmm. he never got married, he never tried to settle down, anything like that. But he, he does have apparently two children, one of whom he is in contact with. And it's the son who I think plays guitar, played guitar for Motorhead occasionally. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about this stuff and <laughs> apparently Lemmy warned his son very early not to experiment with heroin. Hmm. Because that's how all of his friends had died yeah. like in the 60s. But the thing that, that really struck me was that, you know, he was asked about this rock and roll lifestyle. And he was like, well, I, I, I can't recommend it, but I don't know how to do anything else. Hmm. And it was just one of Me those neither, moments. really. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> it was just one of those moments that just felt very honest yeah. in a way that you don't necessarily get from musicians. I mean, part of that is just that Lemmy, too, like didn't really court fame. He just wanted to make music and drink and play pinball, you know? <laughs> Play, play on the, uh, he also really likes uh, slot, liked slot machines and liked to play on the slot machines yeah. and stuff like that. But it was, it was so unguarded and so weird and in places like not very flattering to him that it felt refreshing. It felt like it was, you know, really about a person in the way that often these documentaries don't. They feel like hagiographies really. Yeah. And like, yeah, it was, it was a nice, 
change of pace and like you know they really hammered pretty hard on how he's an authentic rock star which like I wouldn't argue with actually but I did get sick of getting hammered with it but at the same time it's like we have lost that almost totally as a culture like if we return to the top of the segment like what were we discussing how good Taylor Swift is manipulating <laughs> paparazzi yeah. putting out certain media narratives writing songs about her ex-boyfriends yeah. like that is like the total opposite of the motorhead approach where it's just like you live in a hovel near the rainbow bar which is where you spend your free time when you're not on the road yep yeah it's uh, I, I i had a couple of conversations about this while i was away just because um i happened to be talking to people who are involved in art um in berlin go figure <laughs> go figure uh but yeah just about how th- there's i think i think there's a lot of tension right now especially Especially, I think, within the visual art world of like kind of how that that sort of branding or or self-promotion has has encroached there as well. Even if you think about about it as being like a little more protective from what we think of as like pop culture. I don't know. I think I think Damien Hirst changed that for a lot of the art. Yeah. Yeah. But I think right now it's like this idea of should we should we embrace that and just like cravenly go for it or should we still try to like stand up against it when it's clear that that's just the direction of things right now and that's the way that the market is the market is going but just being able to you know live as an artist without without getting into that it's it's harder and harder and everything has a corporate sponsorship now no matter what what level of uh of music or film or anything that you're working in you will be sponsored by somebody at some point i uh i wanted to so wait so can you can you let us know the the title of the documentary again it's just called lemmy and where can you watch it I watched it on Netflix. On Netflix. We are not sponsored by Netflix. <laughs> we sure aren't. Hit me up, Netflix. Let's talk about sponsorships. I have to say a real quick note about watching streaming media is that I had to recap Game of Thrones while in Germany. And I I want it to be on the record. I do pay for an HBO subscription. I'm a paying HBO customer. This does not help you when you are overseas. And you need to recap an episode. So I had to find creative means of watching Game of Thrones this week. I, I you know, as some of you may know, I have to recap um, within a very complex points-based manner. And some of that includes counting nudity or being aware of nudity. The stream that I was watching was of so such low quality that apparently we saw some male frontal nudity on Game of Thrones this week that I completely... Oh yeah, we saw the hound's dick. I completely, the hound's hound. I completely didn't I didn't catch it. I thought it was so such a long shot that that we wouldn't we it was just a, a hint. Like I knew he was peeing, but anyway, I just think that that's a funny that's a funny side effect of our technological limitations when it comes to paid uh, streaming and video services. Um, that is not my recommendation for this week though. <laughs> I have two recommendations and one of them is more uh, conventional, I guess. I, I read a book kind of um, around this feature that I'm working on as a, as a little bit as, as a little bit of research, but um, ended up really enjoying a lot of it while finding it, a lot of it very depressing. It's relatively new too. It's called Labor of Love: The Invention of Dating. Oh, I think I've read excerpts of this. Yeah, it. Uh, I think it was excerpt excerpted excerpted somewhere. <laughs> um, it was. I I read about it in the New Yorker like book review and I thought oh that sounds like something I should be reading right about now um it is by Moira Weigel she 
and I'm, I'm trying to think of where else she's written. I know she's written for M plus one in the past. But it is a history of the idea of dating. And I was it's funny because I was nearing the end of it on my flight back and thinking because she has a very conversational tone. It's written in a very like hashtag relatable manner while not being like any less than extremely informative and like very well observed. But I was nearing the end of it. I was like, this is kind of the closest to uh, like a dating self-help book I've ever read in my life, except it's like like dating self-help in the form of like understanding like the brutal history behind the entire idea of courtship and dating <laughs> so that you can be a more woke dater. Um, oh, good. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, with somebody, so this is not a, a, an immediate concern of mine, but it was still very interesting interesting. Um, It is very much, as the title suggests, about the way that um, economics and the idea of labor, both emotional labor and physical labor, come into play with dating and being, uh, quote, on the market. So, Well, dating's new, right? Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, dating was a working class invention from the turn of the century in the Industrial Revolution um, in cities when you had a lot of places where young people were working all day in factories or they were seamstresses or something. And then uh, they were being paid. comes out of the wage gap, believe it or not. Um, women. Oh, because the seamstresses weren't paid enough yeah, to like, have fun. So so they would go out with a guy who would probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet there was a reputation hit. Oh, yeah. No, there was tons of uh, women who were arrested for prostitution when they were just on what you would consider now a date where a guy was, quote, treating. And, you know, of course, the word treat comes out of there as well in a very much more suggestive manner. But, yeah, it's it's really interesting. I would recommend it. And it is a breeze to read. And some of it, you know... I I would never have made some of the connections that she made, especially as she starts getting into the AIDS crisis, kind of um, coming at the same time as yuppiedom and like hyper consumer culture. It's very yeah, it's a it's a it's a good read. So Labor of Love by Moira Moira Weigel. And um, my last one is like a mini recommendation, Um, especially in times like these when it's you know, we start thinking about escapism or what we can do to kind of like get away from maybe the, a stream of what feels like constant ne- constant negativity, especially online. I went indoor rock climbing. <laughs> Go on. Uh, on I guess it was on Sunday or Monday. I can't remember. I well, I did two things. I did I did indoor rock climbing and then I used a sled at a gym. I don't know if you've ever seen this no i i have never seen this oh my god okay i have never been i have never seen this at a gym either um and it's not a german thing it's like everywhere but um it's just a thing it's like a track of astroturf and the sled is just this metal like it's like a sled and it has a rack that you can put weights on to make it heavier and you just push it across the astroturf like it slides across it and it's such huh. a basic, like, it's a really, really basic movement and activity. But for some reason, it really kicks in this very animal, like, very, very primal part of your brain where you're just like, I got to move this thing. I'm a beast of burden. I'm going to push this weight across. It was a very interesting feeling, not dissimilar to being in a position where you're stuck on a wall, a fake wall with plastic rocks. And you're like, I don't know what to do. I'm going to make some crazy move and push myself upward so I can get out of this predicament I have no other choice. And both were very, very primal brain physical activities that I thought were very, very therapeutic and nice that I had never tried before. So those are my other two recommendations. 
<laughs> yeah, rock climbing is really fun. My only beef with it is it's kind of expensive. Well, this I don't know what the deal is with this place because it was like 10 bucks for us to do it for an hour and it was pretty fun. So I don't know. I have to investigate New York options for it. But a real rock climbing, I'm sure, is very in- intensively expensive like any adventure sports tend to be. That does it for us this week. I hope that our, our recommendations are of, um, of use to people trying to put some... Yeah, let us know. Yeah. Um, yeah, as always, leave comments on our iTunes page. We are VergeSP on iTunes, and we love your feedback. So please leave a rating and let us know what you like about the show. You can also listen to us on Spotify. You can search for The Verge on Spotify and find us there. And we are also on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash VergeSP. You can tweet at us. I am at Emily Yoshida. Liz is at Miss Lapato, MS Lapato. And that does it for us for this week. Hopefully next week won't be so grim. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna keep our thumbs up and try to power through. <laughs> See you next week, everybody. Bye.